like to invite you to read with me in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed of a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? Since I'm a virgin. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative, in her old, or your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This ends the reading of God's word. Christmas time is a lot of fun. We're several weeks into it, nearing the big day. Christmas time is fun. That's something that remains fairly uncontroversial in American culture today. Sure, there may be some who would rather we say happy holidays or or something like that. But once we get past the greeting debate, I think we would agree that most, for most folks, Christmas, the celebration of Christmas is a wonderful time. And while nearly all Americans agree that there's something worth celebrating, we don't really agree on what that celebration particularly entails. This past week, the Pew, the Pew Research Center ran a story that featured some of the most recent trends on how Americans celebrate Christmas. What they have found is, as you might expect, fewer people are taking part in religious activities at Christmas time. Just as many people are celebrating Christmas, but fewer people are doing so in a religious way. This is even true for those who claim to be Christians. But they also surveyed to see how many people... Uh, believed in the key elements of the biblical Christmas narrative. The four key elements are that Jesus was born of a virgin, that baby Jesus was placed in a manger, that wise men brought Jesus gifts, and that an angel announced the birth of Jesus to shepherds. It probably isn't a surprise to you or to us that, that given the growing secularization in our nation, The number of Americans who believe these elements is decreasing. It's not a surprise. This is true of both those who claim no religious affiliation, but it's also true of those who claim to be religious. But of these claims, which do you think is the most controversial? Virgin birth, the manger, the wise men and the star, or the pronouncement of the angel? Which is most controversial? Well, it's the virgin birth. Almost 40% of all Americans say they do not believe in the virgin birth. 
If you were to drill down into that statistic, I know I'm giving you lots of statistics, not super important, but if you were to drill down into that statistic, you would see that about 85% of people who say they're Christians say they believe in the virgin birth. But that means 15% don't. And then about 17% of people who are not religious say that they believe in the virgin birth. I'm not really sure which is more surprising, that 15% of Christians don't believe it, or that 15% of non-Christians do believe it. I'm not, I'm not sure. But either way, this morning I'd like to pose the question to us that the Pew study did not study. Why is the virgin birth important? Is it important? More specifically, why? How is it important to our profession of faith? If I were to ask you that question this morning, or if a child was to come up to you and ask, why does it matter that Jesus was born of a virgin? What would you say? Do you know the answer? What does this tell us about God? Is this, a, is this an essential doctrine to our faith? Can a person even be a Christian and deny the virgin birth? Frankly, I've been a little bit surprised uh, by how resilient the belief in the virgin birth has been, even during the onslaught of modernism over the last several decades. But apparently, there are a number of folks who believe in virgin births. I almost quite literally laughed out loud when I saw of a report that was published in a British medical journal that uh, reported on a study done by the University of North Carolina with about 8,000 women who had given birth. And this study found that almost 1% of these pregnant women claimed that they became pregnant without the help of a man. That they, did, that they became pregnant as virgins. 0.8% of this 8,000-person study claimed virgin pregnancies. Okay, now that's, you can chuckle. We're talking about the birds and the bees a little bit this morning. You can chuckle, right? But why is that funny? Well, because of birds and bees 101, right? Virgins do not conceive. That's, not, that's just not how it works. But we just read of a virgin birth here in Luke's gospel. I know that for many of us, we are very familiar with the Christmas story, so familiar that we can't even distinguish its basic parts because it just washes over us like an old tradition. But this should surprise us. Virgins don't give birth. Yet, here it is. Numerous times. Verse 26, Mary is introduced to us as a virgin. In fact, there are several times where Mary is just mentioned as the virgin, right? Verse 34, Mary is curious about this and highlights this question to the angel. How, how is this going to work? How can I have a son? I'm a virgin. In Matthew's account of the Christmas story, he also rather frankly highlights Mary's virginity. He even says that her virginity, the virgin birth, took place in order to fulfill a prophecy given by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This morning I would like to show to you that the virgin birth is an essential part of the Christmas story. And that it is a part that actually magnifies the glory of Christ 
and his marvelous plan to save the world. In both Luke and Matthew's text and their gospel accounts, they teach that Jesus was the result, that the birth of Jesus was the result of miraculous conception. That's probably a better phrase than virgin birth, right? It was actually a miraculous conception. Verse 35 makes it clear that the son was conceived in the womb of a human mother by the Holy Spirit. Which means that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit without a male seed. Now Mary was understandably quite curious about this, how it would take place. And so she asked the angel for more details and more information. And the clarification she received was not as technical as I think she was hoping for. We can read it in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Isn't this often how God answers our questions? You don't need to know the details. Here is the big theological truth. And that's enough. That was enough for Mary. She was then told by the angel of another miraculous pregnancy. This time by her cousin Elizabeth, who was in old age. When Mary heard this, she submitted to the Lord, saying in verse 35, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Brothers and sisters, may I submit to you this morning that the miraculous nature of the virgin birth is worthy of our careful consideration. That we should think about its theological significance because it tells us about God and about his gospel. So let's consider a couple of reasons that this doctrine is so important and learn why it is so important to God and the gospel. Now I should warn you that there is some deep water ahead. The concept that God became man is rightfully deep. So don't be surprised if you have to think really hard and if you can't get your mind all the way around it. But let's try, because God has revealed this to us. The first thing I'd like to draw your attention to is that the virgin birth shows us that salvation is from God. Salvation is totally a work of God. Since we understand that virgins don't have babies, we are confronted right here at the beginning of the Christmas story. This is a supernatural event. If somehow you missed the angels, if somehow you missed the star that guided magi from the east, if somehow you missed all this, the virgin birth smacks you in the face. It is blatantly supernatural. It is at the beginning of the story screaming at us, God is at work here. This is how one Scottish theologian, Donald MacLeod, described it. He said, The virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas. And none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism. McLeod's right. We mustn't rush past this. The virgin birth is not merely a tidbit of Christmas trivia. It is instead a divine foghorn signaling 
Something new is here. Something different. Something important is happening here. I mean, does it not signal to us? This is no ordinary baby. God is up to something. This is a supernatural birth. In spite of what the some 62 and a quarter American women who were surveyed and claimed that, that they got pregnant without a man, virgins do not get pregnant. And don't be persuaded by those who say that Luke was just foolish, that he was mistaken. Remember, Luke was a doctor. He was acquainted with these things. And I realize that medicine has come a long ways in, in the 2,000 years since this account, but it is not a modern discovery that virgins don't have babies. That is not new medical information. Luke knew what he was saying. He was claiming supernatural. He was claiming that this was impossible or this was a supernatural birth. And the angel was quick to remind Mary, nothing is possible with God. God has been known to produce miracle babies all throughout the Bible. There are numerous women. It's a point that Gabriel wants to remind Mary of. When, when the angel Gabriel said, for nothing will be impossible with God. He was actually quoting the scripture. The angel was. He was quoting the very words that God said to Abram. Do you remember? God told Abram that he and his wife would conceive, even though they were as good as dead. These are the very same words. And in doing so, he is linking the two miraculous pregnancies together. Reminding us that this baby that's conceived in Mary will be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. Mary is the final mother in the long line of women who conceived under miraculous circumstances. Sarah, Rebecca, Hannah, Elizabeth, Mary. And it's fitting for Christ that the very beginning of his life, from conception, from the moment of conception all the way to the end, it's fitting that it would be marked with miraculous events. From the moment of his conception till his ascension into heaven, Jesus was shown to be God and divine. We should also note how the virgin birth actually fulfills prophecy. Not only did Isaiah the prophet foretell of the virgin conception of Christ, but God himself prophesied it in Genesis chapter 3. Follow this carefully. If you remember in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that after sin came into the world, God made a very, uh, what seems to be vague, but a very specific promise about a coming seed. A seed that would eventually crush the serpent. There God told the serpent that there would be hostility between him and the seed of the woman. Okay, so we're back to the birds and the bees, right? The word seed in Hebrew, the same seed is also the word for sperm in Hebrew. The way the Greek translates this in their version of the Old Testament is sperma, right? It's very graphic for us. So we, should, we have to wonder, how can a woman have sperma without a man? Well, she can't. And that's what's so exciting to see. It is God 
not Joseph, who will provide the seed. Just as he promised. It is God, not Joseph, who would provide the seed. As far back as Genesis chapter 3, God promised to provide this sperma. Jesus Christ, conceived of the Holy Spirit, is the fulfillment of this promise. Brothers and sisters, we should pause here and marvel with the childlike wonder of Christmas, not at the reflection of beautiful colored lights on snow, not at the beautiful trappings of an elegantly wrapped package under a tree, should marvel at the manger. What Christmas miracle is greater than this? That this is God. The virgin birth makes it clear that at the first Christmas, God is at work. That God Not man, not Joseph, not Mary. That God initiated the Christmas story. You see, man needed a redeemer, but we couldn't find one. Man after man after man after man, all of these prophets, all these kings, all these seemed to have promise and they all sinned and they all died. Man needed a redeemer and we couldn't find one. So God bypassed man. God bypassed Joseph. God, not Joseph, provided the seed. God didn't even ask for Mary's permission. Isn't that great? He just told her, behold, you will conceive. God took the initiative. God is the author of the Christmas story, and God is the author of salvation. That leaves no room for us, or Mary, or Joseph, or any prophet, or any man to boast. Instead, we should say, like Mary who said it much like Hannah did in 1 Samuel 2, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Friends, the virgin birth shows us that salvation is totally a work of God. There's a second thing that the virgin birth shows us. It's this. Prepare yourself. The virgin birth accounts for the pre-existence of the Son. Hold on to your theological hats, you might feel like your head is about to explode, but the virgin birth allows for the eternal pre-existence of God the Son. The Son of God, who was given the name Jesus, did not come into existence on Christmas night. Did you know that? He did not come into existence on Christmas night. He was born, yet he has always existed. He was given the name Jesus, but he's always had an identity. In fact, he's always had a name. God the Son is eternal and has always existed with God the Father and with God the Spirit since before the foundation of the world. Do you remember how John tells the Christmas story? He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And he goes on to say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The entrance of the Son into the world by virgin conception allows for this. Since the Son existed, right, is your head hurting? Since the Son existed before his birth, he could not have been born by the normal means of human conception. That would have produced an additional second person. Instead, his conception, in his conception, the eternal pre-existent son took on a human body and a human nature. 
He did not take on or become a second person. He simply took on, simply, he took on a second nature. This is how the Son of God, and this is how we can begin to try to understand that the Son of God became man. That he was both God and man. You see, if the Son had taken on a second person, then there would not be three persons in the Trinity, but four. I've been trying to figure out what that would be. Quad unity? Quad entity? I don't know. It doesn't matter, right? There would be a fourth person. And this fourth person even if he was sinless, would be inferior because he would be a limited, finite human. Now, in light of that, think about how incredibly precise Isaiah's prophecy was in Isaiah chapter 7. Listen to this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Did you hear that? A child is born, A son is given. What more can we say? But to marvel, to come, to invite you, to come to Bethlehem and see for yourself. Come to the manger and marvel. Marvel at this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Bow down before an infant, for he is the eternal one, the preexistent. This baby born on Christmas Day is the ancient of days. We should note a third thing, if our hearts and minds will allow it. That the virgin birth explains to us how Christ can be both human and sinless. How Christ can be both human and sinless. We have to do this on, in a, a shallow sort of way because this is also deep. But did you realize that the Bible teaches that we are sinners not only because we choose to do sinful things, which we do, but also because we have been stained by the sin of Adam, that we have inherited his guilt? Romans 5, Romans 5 teaches this incredibly clearly, that our sin and our legal guilt is inherited. Listen to Romans 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now I know that this is a loaded verse on a loaded concept packed with mind-blowing truth, but think about this highlight. Sin came into the world because of Adam's sin, and it spread like a communicable disease. It spread from parents to children. No one is immune. No one has escaped. So much so that the sin and the corruption are transmitted from a parent to a child every time. Think about what this means. Since Jesus was born without a human father, the line between Adam the sinner and Jesus was interrupted. It was broken. It was temporarily, or it was changed. Jesus was called the Son of Man and the Son of God. 
but he's not technically the son of Adam. Go read Luke's genealogy, and you'll see how Luke denotes this. It's interesting. Jesus did not descend from Adam. He descended from where? From God. So he is unstained by the sin of Adam. Jesus is like Adam because he came from God. That's what Romans 5 said. He said that that Jesus is a type of Adam. Let me show you how this blows our minds even more. Adam and Jesus are the only humans not to be conceived by another human. In Luke's genealogy, he says, he finishes, gets to the very end, and he says, he says, such and such was the son of such and such, such and such was the son of such and such, such and such was the son of such and such, and then Adam was the son of God. But Adam was a very bad son. He was a bad son. He disobeyed. And because of his disobedience, sin spread, and death spread to all of the children of Adam. And so then came Jesus, also the son of God, as the angel tells us. So he is an Adam, a second Adam, a better Adam, because he never sinned. Like Adam, Jesus was conceived not through the seed of a sinful man, but was conceived by the Holy Spirit, which explains how Jesus could be born a human and yet escape all the corruption that belongs to other humans. The virgin birth interrupted Adam's line. And so now Jesus is the new Adam. It's beautiful, isn't it? One more thing. Doesn't this make it even more exciting to know that Jesus, this new Adam, came adopting? He comes adopting new children. That's what Galatians 4 says, that God sent forth the Son born of a woman, born under the law, that he would redeem those under the law so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. We got a bad father. We need a new one. Jesus came offering adoption. Don't you see, my friends? We have been conceived in iniquity, just like David said in his psalm. And so now we must be born again. We must be adopted Adopted as sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters of Jesus, the second Adam. We must be born again. Though your head hurts, do you see the beauty of the virgin birth? Do you see? All of this would be lost if the virgin birth is rejected. What else would be lost? What else would be lost if you deny the truthfulness of the virgin birth? Let me offer a few things that would be lost. The first is the truthfulness of Scripture. Students, prepare yourself. You will likely go to a college where your professor may stand up and tell you this is ridiculous. So prepare yourself. If you lose the virgin birth, you lose the truthfulness of all the Scripture. If you cannot trust the words and the records of Matthew and Luke regarding the virgin birth, then what else can you not trust? If they were duped, or worse, if they lied about Mary's conception, what else did they lie about? What were they trying to cover up? Who is this Jesus that they're trying to misconstrue? Who is this man accounted for in the Gospels? So not only would the denial of the virgin birth lead to the loss of the credibility of the Scripture, 
but it would leave us desperately searching on a quest for the historical Jesus. Secondly, if you lose the virgin birth, here's what would happen. It's a rejection. If you reject miracles, you lose Christianity. If you reject the possibility of miracles, all Christianity is lost. Many people, I'd probably say most people, who reject the virgin birth do so because it's supernatural. They may find other reasons to do so, like saying, oh, you know, we can't trust Luke. He didn't really understand how women get pregnant. And, you know, we can't trust Matthew. He was a tax collector. And those guys, you know, you can't trust them. Or we can't even trust Isaiah, that virgin. He's talking about someone else, right? You, you can, they, they do that, but ultimately it comes down to the fact you don't believe virgins can get pregnant. It's the arrogance of the modern man. If I can't understand it by my own reason, then it cannot happen. If the scientists can't reproduce it, it must not be real. I'm a man of science, they say. But here's the thing. If you reject miracles, you reject the supernatural. And all of Christianity is lost. Now that may sound obvious to you, but you would be surprised. How many? There are churches in our town who have done this. They've rejected this. There are some who have rejected the miraculous and yet still try to hold on to Jesus. But in my view, it all falls down. Usually, the rejection of the virgin birth is just one step down a slippery slope to rejecting the supernatural and God himself. A third thing is lost. If you reject the, super, if you reject the virgin birth, you will be left with an impoverished understanding of the redemption. Now, hopefully your mind has been stretched and you're scratching your head a little bit as you've tried to understand something new about the gospel this morning. But do you see how if you don't understand this, you have a small view of the gospel, an impoverished view of redemption. We only have a little bit of time to consider this now, but have we not seen how the incredible redemptive precision of God is displayed in the gospel? Do we not wonder at this glorious sign, at this master crafting of his plan? That's what Galatians 4 reminds us of. That this was a necessary part of his plan. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, the mysterious glory this mind-boggling glory of the virgin birth, it shows us God became man, and yet he was sinless. That God became man, yet he was sinless. I mean, think about it. We must, friends, consider the massive problem of redemption. We've talked about this many times before. Sin requires death, but God can't die. So how can God save people if sin requires death and God can't die? Well, joy, eternal joy, requires eternal life. But humans can't live forever. We also aren't very good at rising from the dead. But Jesus can do all that. Jesus can. And Jesus did. He did it all. In Jesus, God died. And in Jesus, a man perfectly obeyed. And though he was taken by death, he is stronger than death. And so he rose from the dead. And now, sinful man can live forever 
with God. Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. But the grave could not contain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. Christmas is a celebration of the gospel, that man must no longer die. That we are no longer born only to die, but that we can born, be born to know new life. That's the celebration of Christmas. I don't care what Starbucks puts on their cups. That is Christmas. God became man, died the death that I deserved, and rose to life and invites us to join with him forever. There's a fourth thing that is lost if you reject the virgin birth. At worst, it is a denial of Christ. Until this week, I thought that it was possible, that it might be possible, that one could deny the virgin birth and still be a Christian. But I no longer believe that. In 1 John 4, we're told that that is the very spirit of the Antichrist. Listen as I read 1 John 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. He says the spirit of the Antichrist denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. He denies the incarnation. And so we, a people of faith, must be certain to confess this truth. We must be certain to confess, as we did in song, loudly, that Jesus did take on flesh through the glorious, mysterious wonder of the incarnation. And that if we deny this glorious mystery, we are shaming and perhaps blaspheming the Son of God. And if we blaspheme him, what hope could be left for us? While we must pause and linger to marvel at the eternal Son of God lying in a trough, we must, like Jesus, move on from Bethlehem. From there, we must make our way out of the stable and out of Bethlehem to Jerusalem and to a hill called Calvary. For it is only at Calvary that we can understand why Jesus had to come. For as Galatians said, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. The word became flesh at Christmas in order to redeem us from the curse of sin. The word became flesh at Christmas so that you will not have to die eternally. The scriptures teach that in order to do this, it is not sufficient to believe in the virgin birth. It is not sufficient to be a member of our Sunday school program or a member of this church. It is not sufficient. What is required is to place all of your faith in Jesus. A baby, the pre-existent one, born of a virgin, to place your faith in him. And what that means is before him, you must not only marvel and you must not only worship and sing and give gifts, but you must submit that's how we worship him, by bowing. He has an eternal throne. He's a king. We submit all of our desires and dreams to him. 
and to his rule. That's what Mary told, was told by the angel, that to this Jesus would be given an eternal throne, the throne of David. And his kingdom, unlike David's, would be forever, which means Jesus is king. You want to relate to God through Jesus? You submit to Jesus. So we don't only give him our gifts of praise. We don't only give to Lottie Moon or give frankincense or myrrh. We must give him obedience and submission. For salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved than the God-man. Jesus Christ, Son of God, born of a virgin, unstained by sin, so that you might live again. We join me in prayer as we consider how to respond to such a glorious truth. Father, we ask that you would make clear to us the glorious mysteries of your incarnation. Help us to understand how the God of life could be slain by death and live again. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts to impart this truth to us. As we say each week, God's word requires and demands a response. So how are you to respond to his word this morning. I can think of two necessary responses. We must respond by marveling and worshiping this God. We marvel and we worship him. But we must also respond by submitting to him. Perhaps you have never submitted your life to Christ. You may claim to be a Christian, but you have not given your life and your allegiance over to him and following in his ways. Let today be the day that you become a child of God. Let's stand and sing together. Consider how you would respond. I'll be here at the front if you'd like to speak or pray at the altar. Isn't he, Isn't he beautiful? Beautiful. beautiful. Isn't he Prince of Peace? Son of God. Isn't he? Isn't he? Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Isn't he? Counselor.